I'm Willie D. Nelson from All Things Good and Nerdy, a pop culture podcast, part of the Gunna Geek Network. Just like the show you're checking out now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other tantalizingly geeky shows at GunnaGeekNetwork.com. Talk hard and enjoy the mindgasm. The intellectual podcast starts now. Hello, welcome to the intellectual podcast. I'm your host, David S. Dossing. Uh, we are trying something new. This is the first of a series of live streams uh, that we are doing with a new system uh, from StreamYard. And uh, hopefully it's going to allow us to do more live streams with uh, far more interactivity and kind of... Uh, you know, panache, a little bit nicer look than what we've done in the past. Um, I'm going to get right into it after I do one little thing. I want to remind you that we're a proud member of the Gunna Geek Network at GunnaGeekNetwork.com. Be sure to check out all the other geeky podcasts available at Gunna Geek. And uh, I'm going to bring in my co-host for today, Miss Whitney Wegman. Hello, Whitney. Hello, hello. How are you doing in pandemic? Um. Doing all right. Just hanging out at the house. <laughs> uh, I understand you uh, You actually went down to some of the demonstrations in La Mesa the other day before things got all out of whack and weird. I did. I did. We went really early. Um, we were very cognizant of the social distancing, like kept our mask on. And, um, you know, we're like, OK, I'm just I'm not going to touch anything. Just going to keep this far away from people. But uh, it. Yeah, we were there, like I said, early when it was quite a peaceful protest. Um but then we were able to watch a lot of live streams towards the end of the evening whenever it uh, got really dangerous and scary and crazy. Uh, there was actually one guy, because the news kind of stopped broadcasting at like 8 o'clock Friday night. Which is right when Saturday. things got, got weird. Right? Yeah, sorry. Yeah, I said Saturday. Um, it was Saturday night. Um, time. Time in <laughs> pandemic. Who knows what day it is? Um, but there was a guy named uh, Brant Tuck was on roller skates, just rolling around, just becoming citizen reporter and doing a really thorough job and checking on people's businesses and stuff. So it was um, kudos on him for keeping everyone informed, despite like being in chaos. It was, I wouldn't have, uh, that seemed really frightening to me, but yeah. Well, we gotta we gotta thank the people who are functioning as citizen journalists. We we should thank all of the uh, you know credentialed journalists that are putting themselves in harm's way because they're doing the work that gets the truth out of what's really happening. Mm -hmm. And uh, oddly enough, with all the turmoil and weird shit going on in our lives right now, and how important news is, um, our guest today I don't think could be any more relevant uh, to what's happening uh roman koenig uh is a long long friend of mine we've been filmmakers together uh actually one of the first films i ever worked on outside of my own productions was one of roman's movies a film called human resource which uh dovetails into the stories that uh, we'll be talking about from his novel that he has recently released called black market news Hmm. Uh, so why don't we bring Roman in? He can tell us a little yeah. bit about black market news, and then we can kind of talk a little bit about what's going on in the world. Hi, Roman. Hey, you too. How Hi. you doing? How's it going, sir? Good. Busy in quarantine, <laughs> but you know, I, I'm I'm hanging in there. <laughs> well, How about you guys? Uh, you know, we do our thing. On top of everything, you also teach uh, college courses, right? In journalism. 
I do. Yeah, at San Diego State and at City College, and that's that. Depending on how time permits, there's a whole host of stuff to talk about that and teaching online and social media and all that stuff too. It's been crazy. Yeah. Uh, so you moved to the teaching online. Yeah, and it's uh, it, it it helped for me because I've taught online before, so I know how to how to do that. But um, a lot of students have not taken online classes before. Right. So there was sort of a relearning process for me because I, I've, it's easy to, to teach people who anticipate certain things online. And a lot of the students, especially at San Diego State, didn't know what to expect because they haven't been in an online environment for college before. So it, it's, been, it's been an interesting learning curve. Yeah. Wow. I don't know if you see the uh, little bug on the screen oh, there, Roman. But yes. Carla says, hi, guys. Hi, Carla. Hi, Carla. <laughs> uh, I want to point out that Carla is actually the person who uh, introduced us. She hired me on yes. your film, Human Resource. That's right. <laughs> so hello, Good Carla. Good to see you, Carla. Hello, Carla. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. Um, and nice to see that our new system's working. Like, I'm able to pull up Facebook yeah. comments. Uh, so, yeah, if you've got comments for Roman while we're ta talking to him, you know, type them into the comments and... Uh, uh, you know, if I got time uh, to interject them into our conversation, I'd be happy to do that. Great. Um, Roman, uh, Black Market News. Uh, Whitney hasn't had a chance to read it. She's been busy uh, going out and protesting uh, <laughs> <laughs> and teaching and doing other things that, that Whitney does. Um, I managed to get almost to the end. I haven't, I haven't finished it. But uh, for, for, our, for our viewers and our listeners on the podcast later, um, can you tell us a little bit about what Black Market News is about? Yeah, so the story in short is about this character, Quinn. And he comes out of college um, having gone through a pretty severe incident in his life where he's basically um, severely injured in an attack of some kind. And he, uh, it, it shapes his worldview as a result. He, he's a survivor for one. Um, and from there, he rebuilds himself physically and emotionally and goes into this world of black market news. He becomes basically an underground journalist in a future United States where um, everything is dominated by a single corporate conglomerate where government and everything's all one and the same. It's all one thing. And it's really hard to get a message out. It's hard to get to find the truth. It's hard to... Um, to hear anything else other than what the corporate line, which is the government line, is going to be. So he and a group of his friends try to seek the truth about what happened to him, and uh, they uncover a much larger uh, scandalous situation uh, that uh, they try to undo and make right. And wow. <laughs> after, what I, after what I saw this weekend, like that sounds a little too uh, plausible. <laughs> Yeah. You know, yeah, and it's kind of, um, it's, it's a little unnerving. Uh, I wish I could say it was surprising maybe, but I don't know at this point. But, but there's a lot of stuff in the book that is, is really relevant to what's going on right now. Well, so I guess so a good question would be, um, when did you start ruminating on this idea? Like, are you, are you being precognizant right now? Like... <sighs> Well, it's interesting you you asked that because the original version of this story dates back to 20 years ago. Uh, oh. in, yeah, in 1999-2000, the original black market news was my thesis research and film project at San Diego State for my film degree. So this, is, this story has morphed and changed in some form or another for the last 20 years. And 
every time that I would revise it, something has happened that falls right in line with what the story sort of predicted, even back to, to the year 2000. So um, this version of the story I started working on in 2017 as a, as a novel form. And I just kept, as things kept going on in the last two years, I kept sort of revising the work to, to update it, to keep it relevant to what's going on. It, it's been crazy. Yeah, it goes back 20 years. Yeah, in the uh, in the novel, kind of the large conglomerate uh, that is taking over everything is called Estate, and uh, Estate was the entity in Human Resource, the film that yeah. I worked with you on twenty years ago. <laughs> um, so you've been ringing this bell for a very, very long time. Yeah, so. yeah, I have, and um, it, the book is also a merger of the original Black Market News and. Human Resource, which was the film we worked on. So some people who are familiar with that movie and my original work will see both of those stories merged together into this, into this one. You know, I could make, you could make a series out of it just because of the world that it's been built into, but I'm happy to get this off my back because it's a story. Even Human Resource was designed to be an improvement from what I learned in college as a separate film. And I just, I, it's time to move on. The book is sort of like the ultimate final message. Uh, and I'm glad it's, I'm glad it's finished. Well, having, <laughs> having been with you on that journey for the last 20 years and, and, you know, I've watched, if not all of your films, I've watched most of your films over this time. Um, and certainly you and I have had plenty of discussions about these themes and these topics over the years. What I really enjoyed reading black market news was, the maturity that has come into your ability to tell this story um, has, I think, finally matched the uh, the kind of thoughts you had about it as a younger man. And I think you, I think you really managed to bring that maturity to it now and tell this story in a way I don't think you were quite capable of doing when you were a younger man. And it's it was really neat to read it and kind of see those those uh, ideas evolve and grow. Um, in the course of this novel. That's a, a great observation because I feel that way myself about it too. It, it's been really fascinating as a journey to see where the story, not just the story itself started, but the maturity in how I tackled the subject matter and how I've written it. It's changed dramatically in the last 20 years. One of the toughest things that I had going into filmmaking as a writer, especially is writing dialogue, um, which always seemed to surprise me. But um, over time I discovered that writing dialogue was really difficult for me. Mm -hmm. And the, the journey for writing dialogue has been really amazing to see in my own work. When I see my early work and I see my work now, it's, it's, it's night and day, you know? So um, I, I can see that maturity and that growth in myself too. It, it's a, it's been a really cool experience. So it's, I really like that you noticed that because I feel that way too. Yeah. So well, now- it, it's that separation of characters. Like I think you're better at, uh, at kind of understanding opposing viewpoints and differing viewpoints in a way you didn't before. And you were able to kind of really flesh these characters out and make them feel more real as opposed to just an extension of your voice. Um, yeah. Which is what I felt in your earlier works. Totally. I, I agree with everybody that sounded like Roman before. And now everybody's got an interesting and unique voice, which is really cool. It's, Thank you. So uh, now, I was Roman, very impressed. Um, 
you said that obviously you're you're a filmmaker and you've uh, done a lot of screenplays and stuff. Uh, are you strictly? I mean, is is this your first novel? What, where does it fall on the spectrum of of your writing? Yeah, this is my first novel, um, and. It, it came about as a result of a challenge among a, a group of friends of mine and I. We've known each other since high school. I, I didn't know Dave in high school, um, but we sort of sort of passed, you know, in the night, right? So these uh, these friends of mine from high school and I, we challenged, we challenged each other back in 2017 for all of us to write a novel, that all of us would get a novel done in two years' time. And that's what sparked the momentum to actually get this done as a novel because I figured, oh, I've got this story. I've got to get it out of my system once and for all. I finally have an opportunity to get this done. So I used this story as that challenge for my novel that I was going to write. So um, I'd like to write another. I really enjoyed the process. I hope it takes a shorter time than two years, but some, you know, some novel writers take five, 10, 15 years to write a single book. So, um, yeah. <laughs> George Martin. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, exactly. So, um, I, I'd like to write, I, I've gotten the bug in me now. And I was telling Dave yesterday that one of the things that I really liked about writing the novel version of this is that I didn't have to hire a crew. I didn't have to cast actors. I didn't have to have a production budget and I could write anything I wanted without special effects, without sets, without craft services, whatever it might be. No limitations. No limitations. And, you know, um, especially in COVID time right now, this is a really good outlet for my storytelling. So, um, I would like to explore doing this more as a result. Yeah. Can you talk about like the difference in process for screenwriting versus writing a novel? Sure. Um, The biggest thing I noticed was the biggest thing I learned was how much open space you have, because up until this point, I've written only scripts and scripts are very plug and play, right? They're utilitarian. They're not designed to be read. They're designed to be performed. And so once I put the first version of the novel together, I realized I had all these gaps. The first people that read it for feedback, this writing circle was that group. They were saying, yeah, but there's, there's missing development over here. And what about the character over here? And what's the motivation over there? And I missed a lot of that because in a script, you don't necessarily go that deep into it unless you're doing a TV series, let's say. But I didn't have that. So the biggest thing for me was realizing I have every rule in the, not just every rule, but every, every space in the toolbox. And it's not just a toolbox anymore. It's a meadow. And then it's not just a meadow. It's a whole planet worth of material I could pull from, um, that, a you know, an 80 page script doesn't need, you know, this is a book that has to be, you know, 400 pages or whatever it might be. I don't remember what the word count is on this book. Um, yeah, I, I don't remember. I know, that, I know that the Kindle told me it should take me about six and a half hours to read. It, it is on the shorter end of, the, of a novel. Um, I, I sort of pushed the limit on the bottom end of what, a, of what the word count should be. That much I know. But then again, in creative work, what's, but I, what's I like, the minimum I word like count anyway, right? Because it's, uh, it feels lean, you know, like there's not, uh, I mean, you're very descriptive and I, I, I actually found myself greatly enjoying uh, how descriptive you are in your work, but it's not bloated. Um, 
everything felt like it had purpose and drive to getting through the narrative. Um, you know, sometimes I read some of these novels and it's just like, okay, how much does this guy really like to read his own words? You know, like, I don't need 40 pages on how a brick wall looks. <laughs> right. It, it, that's a good point. One of the, uh, Matt Racine, he's one of the people I've, I've got to credit him with this particular point that he noticed when I put this book together, he was in the writing circle that, that was part of the writing challenge for this. And he said, you know, you should write a script first for every novel you want to write because it seemed to work as such a good blueprint for yeah, what's a great outline. Yeah. It is a great outline. You know, so often a book becomes a novel, but a book becomes uh, a screenplay, but in, in the reverse, it's a great way to approach an outline for, for a novel. And I think that black market news hit that, hit that good note of being just descriptive enough. Like you were saying, without being bloated, because I don't like bloated writing. It's just not, it's just not how I, how I was raised. Right. So it offends um, the journalist in you. (laughs) It it, it does. Yeah. You know, and, and speaking of, of journalism in this, I, I find that this change in writing has been a really nice opportunity for me. It's been a real refreshing change of pace to actually write about something that's not true (laughs) and, you know, and writing and crafting fiction for a change instead of going out and reporting and doing the research, getting back to your audience and informing them. I like that this novel informs, but it's also a novel and not, um, and not fact-based because I can, I can take some liberties that you can't and shouldn't in journalism. So, right. Yeah. Um, so the difficulty I always have, and, and we've talked about it with other writers on the podcast, is is sitting down and actually writing. And you spoke about kind of a, a challenge you did with your friends to write a novel in two years. Uh, what is that process? Like, how do you force yourself to make that happen within two years? Um, did you schedule? Like, I know some writers, like, make a schedule and every day they sit down for a certain period of time. Other writers only write when, you know, the muse visits. Uh, what was your process in, in getting through it and getting it done? The original writing process was much more muse-like. I, I was not writing every day at first. I was, I, I would write depending on whether I was inspired that day to sit down and flesh some of the story out. It did help that I had the screenplay to work from. That, that's for, that was a huge difference. I, I don't know how this process would work for me if I didn't have a screenplay. I'll, I'll try that the next time. I'll be curious to see if I can just write something raw, um, stream of consciousness kind of thing. But once I got into the rhythm, I was writing every day, every day. And I was writing at usually a coffee shop. It would be after I was done with classes. It would be in late afternoons. And I would be over at a place called Swell uh, in Del Mar, which isn't there anymore. But, you know, the, the, the baristas there, you know, they became friends of mine because I was there literally, practically almost every day, always writing on, uh, on my novel. And then from there went the editing process and all of that was a daily thing. It became a, literally a daily routine. If it was for 15 minutes or an hour or two hours from maybe like the start of 2018, no, mid 2017, I'm sorry, mid 2017, all the way through to the end of 2019. Yeah. I guess it's just you and me. Um, so oh, yeah. I, I'm curious, uh, have, when you were a kid, like, 
did you always have a passion for writing? Uh, you just hear about a lot of people. Like uh, I've been reading a lot of Stephen King, and I re recently read his book on writing. He talked about how That's he started great. writing. He was like eight years old and writing stories. Have you always been a writer? Yeah, it's. I, I would say that the the writing developed for me in uh, in late elementary school into junior high. That's when it really started, and I discovered the passion for that by getting involved in the campus newspaper when I was in seventh and eighth grade. So I was already doing journalism by seventh and eighth grade, but I was also doing theater from maybe at the age of 12, uh, all the way up until gosh, maybe about 15 years ago. So the writing itself as I do it now, I wasn't writing a lot of short stories and stuff like that, but I was getting into journalism really early and I was into performing arts really early. So those two things sort of morphed into this by high school. And um, it, then that grew into my interest in, in film when I entered film studies back in the late mid to late nineties. And I was doing a lot of writing by that point, because that was part of what, what I was doing for a learning process. And I fell in love with screenwriting. Star Trek um, of all things also was a big, um, was a big influence in that. So was, um, uh, so was Twilight Zone. I loved that show. So I loved writing things that were really imaginative and took you outside of, of the present that we were in, the world that we were in and taking you somewhere else. And I love the social commentary side of it too. It wasn't just about the creative writing. It was also seeing how I could, how, how I could make something relevant and thoughtful that was also entertaining at the same time. You know, all of that sort of morphed over the, over the years. And I feel like sci-fi does that really well, like addresses social concerns through this science fiction lens. Um, so you, you mentioned Star Trek and Twilight Zone. Um, what about favorite authors? Like who inspired you? George Orwell is a, is a big one for me when it comes to novels. I was, <laughs> this is really weird. I don't know how it is that I didn't get into AP English or advanced prep English or whatever that was. I was never in that, but I was reading novels that should have placed me there by the age of 12, you know, 10, 11, 12. I was in seventh grade during, you know, remember sustained silent reading or you had reading time when you were in, in elementary school and junior high. I was reading um, a book called We by a Russian author named Yevgeny Zamyatin, which was a dystopian novel from the 1920s. And I was reading that in seventh grade, followed by 1984 and um, Brave New World, Aldous Huxley. <clears throat> excuse me, I was reading all of those really early on. So they shaped a lot of my, um, a lot of my worldview in terms of storytelling. Mm -hmm. uh, and then when it comes to TV and, and movies, a lot of what Spielberg was putting out in the late 70s, Close Encounters, is a really influential movie on me. Star Wars, of course, is um, Jaws as well. Uh, and then Star Trek as well. Um, pretty the early, you know, the original 1960s show. Uh, certainly, Next Generation. By the time I was in high school, yeah, I'm rewatching all that right now. <laughs> yeah, so after season two, you know, those first two seasons are debatable. <laughs> but once that season three hit, that was, you know, that was some really good, really good TV writing and producing and performance. You know, yeah, I just finished a binge watch of uh, Star Trek Voyager. It's, I, I realized after watching Picard that I'd never seen the entire season of Star Trek Voyager. It was the only Star Trek that I didn't watch in its entirety. So I, I rectified that the, the last couple of weeks. It was better than I thought it was. <laughs> I think the show, 
I think the show has aged better than people would have expected. I found that I've been watching it when it it shows up on BBC America sometimes. um, And I'll watch a, I'll I'll watch a bunch of the episodes and I find myself liking the show more than I did when it was originally on. And I liked it when it was originally on actually. Sometimes it's interesting about Star Trek. I, I sometimes wish that the next generation had continued in the way Dr. Who continued mm. where Picard would have retired and Riker would have taken over or maybe Riker would have left. And then Janeway would have taken over the enterprise and if Voyager they handled would have been it like Grey's generation. Anatomy or ER where the, yeah. the, the people just cycle through as, as exactly. it would be on a real ship. Right. I kind of wish they'd done that because, you know, we could have had Star Trek in that incarnation all the way through to this day with like five or six captains, right. With maybe a few movies thrown in there. Maybe they'll still do that, you know, if the producers are listening. It might be a better way than doing this piecemeal, you know, let's go forward and let's go backward and let's go to Discovery and let's go to – I won't talk about – I have not watched Discovery, so I I, – <laughs> in, in we can, we can, we can, it's very it's controversial we can, yes, we can talk about that time. Uh, so in the in this whole realm of sci-fi and and current reality how do you feel about the fact that the government released that they have all this ufo footage and they dropped the bomb like in the middle of weird? the pandemic very quietly nobody's talked about it like yeah uh, yeah that's sort of that just appeared in the news cycle pretty quickly i noticed it was sort of was like there is a blip and then it and then it disappeared um yeah, I find that really interesting. I, I, I haven't had a chance to, to look at any of the stuff that's been released, but it might be time for a new X-Files of some kind, you know, <laughs> or a new Fringe, you know. Those, those two shows were, were perfect for this stuff. And, uh, or maybe I'll look, I'm sure there are, you know, any number of shows you could create out of that stuff, and I'll have to look at it myself. Uh, did, did either of you watch Project Blue Book on um, – was that History Channel? I think it was on the History Channel. It was one of their no, shows. I, I didn't. It was actually a pretty, you would think that things like History Channel, their shows are kind of like, I don't know, they're not known for their Their for shows their have gone off the rails. <laughs> yeah, but, but that was a pretty good show, actually. It, it's really loosely based on the real Blue Book. I mean, they take the Blue Book and then like blow it up into completely different things. <laughs> but, but it's inspired from that, you know, and um, you could probably take all sorts of stuff out of that out of that new material they've released and create something yeah. new out of it. Totally. <laughs> Definitely. So the themes of black market news, Roman, are, are, are pretty accessible to the things that we're going through today. Um, what would you hope somebody who's watching what's going on in the world today would get out of reading your novel? One of the things that I've really hope people get out of it is to think critically about where we are in this moment and where it is that they get information that they think they believe and trust. Um, you know, the social media environment, one of the most frustrating things for me is this proliferation of fake news. And I, I change that into something else. I call it fringe fact in, in the novel. Mm-hmm. And because I'm most at a certain point where fake news is going to merge with the real thing. And then you have really this gray area. And I think fringe fact and fake fact, as I call it in the novel, I I hope we don't go there, but that's what the book partly tackles. Well, I think we're kind of there already. (sighs) Yeah, we might be. I I I mean, when when you start looking at, uh, we start looking at the improprieties of all the major networks. Uh, yeah, I don't want to single one out over another because sure. they've all had their improprieties. There's one 
specifically that I think is more guilty of it than the rest. Fox. <laughs> um, but, uh, but it, it is a danger right now that it's, yeah. it's, it's so hard to determine what is truth and what is you being spoon fed an, an idea that they yeah. want you to believe. And the actors are so good at it. That's, that's the problem. And, you know, I have a, a kind of a funny story about this. I, when I was at Palomar College, I, I, got, I got my journalism – the only journalism degree I have is an associate's degree from Palomar College. That was, by the way, more than any bachelor's degree or four-year university I would have learned was there at a community college. Community colleges are a great place to go. Anyway, when I was on – when I was one of the editors on the student newspaper there, The Telescope, we used to publish an April Fool's edition. And the April Fool's edition would be a chance for us to make up all these stories about people on campus and um, events and all this kind of stuff. I don't think you can get away with it anymore. You know, back in the 90s, that was like the last era where you could really um, – push the envelope and, and not go and not ruin people's reputations. Um, but I created this story for our spoof edition about how the president of the college, George Boggs bought this restaurant in San Marcos that was called George burgers. Maybe you've heard of it. It's, it's an institution oh, yeah. in San Marcos for like 50 years. Right. So anybody who goes to Palomar college knows what George. Yes. Burgers. Yeah. You go, that's where you go for, for lunch. Right. So, um, this story I wrote was about how George Boggs bought George Burgers and called it George Boggs Burgers. And the people at the, the owners of the restaurant were livid because they thought that I had written something that was supposed to be passed off as truth and they wanted a retraction. Well, you know, my advisor and I had to remind them that this is in a spoof edition. It says this is fake and they still <laughs> bought it as real. But then on top, and I couldn't believe it that someone would actually take it as, as real. But then, um, I was, we, the two of us were talking to a student and we mentioned the story in passing and the student said, well, that's not, that didn't happen. And the student that we were talking to also thought that the story was real. And this was 1991, 1992. Well, so, that's saying something because it's, it's in a paper yeah. and it's, it's definitively labeled as fake news. And for fun, but, it was a joke. but I have seen that play out over and over again as people discover the onion for the first time. Right. Yeah, totally. Right? Exactly. All they see is a headline and a photo and they go, Oh, this is outrageous. Share. Can you believe this? <laughs> you know? And exactly. it's like, well, no, that's why it's fake. continuously get on people to like do your due diligence before hitting that share button. One, find out if it's supposed to be hyperbolic and two, find out if it's like, has any legs to stand on at all. People, that's the other thing about people aren't usually fooled because they don't take time to do logical research or use logic period. But, you know, <laughs> no, I mean, and I think that's true. And one of the things that's really bothering me about social media right now is what's going on with, with Twitter. And this is not I, I have friends who are and colleagues who are supporters of, of the current president. And so I don't like to get I try to avoid arguments with them because I, I just don't. I don't think it's worth it. However, not always worth it. Sometimes it's worth it, right? Um, but the the issue with Twitter and people's concerns about any political leader, it doesn't have to be just Donald Trump. It could be any political leader. Um, seeing things on Twitter that are patently, um, objectively, and provably incorrect or false, right, um, that are not true, or inciting potentially violence, and Twitter is unwilling 
he's still a private citizen, just like anybody else. And yet Twitter as a platform is unwilling to, to regulate it in some way. You know, a little blue line underneath saying, ah, check this out, is I'm frankly, I don't think good enough. And I don't think social media platforms are realizing that they are also, they're not just, con- they're not just aggregators. They're not just sending information out there. They're also, um, they're, they're producers as well. I, I don't think they realize it yet, but by the act of allowing it on the platform, they're also producers. But that's also a whole other can of worms. Well, now they're going to have to moderate because, uh, you know, Trump signed an executive order that they would be forced to moderate, which I don't think he realizes they're going right. to moderate you, dude. No, and, 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 I don't, and that's, not, that's not the right approach. Certainly, I don't think. I don't think it's constitutionally viable anyway. But, you know, in Europe, um, there's, there's an issue with this because in, in Europe, websites are responsible for commenters' comments. In the United States, courts have found that, as of now at least still, that websites are not responsible for commenters' comments. And the issue there is, and I understand from this perspective, I understand why Twitter and why Facebook and others want to be hands-off on this. Because as soon as they take responsibility for those, then they can be sued for those and they can be yeah. found liable for those. Yeah. And, and they're not the ones producing the comments, Right. It's the, it's the commenters in Europe. That's considered a moderation issue. And you've seen it. You're responsible for it. It's on your platform and you could be sued for 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 libel, whatever it might be, if it's untrue um, or slanderous. I'm I'm I don't know how I feel about that yet, to be honest. I actually don't. I'm not quite sure what to make of that. Well, I've got another filmmaker friend of mine who's been uh, uh, just incessantly attacked by another filmmaker on various platforms um, who's just like constantly posting negative crap about this guy, which is all totally false and untrue Um, attacking movies that he's made that haven't been released yet. And, you know, I mean, it's just an, it's an incessant burden of, of pain on this filmmaker that no matter how much he contacts various outlets, they, they're either slow to respond or they don't respond at all to removing, you know, flat out blatant lies about his product, about his personages. You know, it's, it's such a bullying issue for him and he feels like there's no support. And he, he's called me numerous times and asked, you know, what do I do about this? And I, I keep telling him the only thing you can do is just ignore it. <laughs> yeah, you know? um, and, but it, it's it's hard because like I get it. Those companies, if they start policing too much, then they start opening themselves up to the fact that they're liable for what's on their pages, and it's a catch twenty two for them. They maybe want it to be a nice, fair place to be, but they don't want to become responsible for what people can write up there because they can't stay ahead of it. And the only way, yeah. inevitably, the only way to take care of it at that point is to remove that. And then they face criticisms of censorship. <laughs> so. I, I do think news outlets, news outlets certainly should moderate comments. I agree. They, there, they, they absolutely sure. should. The problem is it's also very labor intensive. Algorithms don't always catch the bad actors. And so you have to have that human element in there. Um, but, you know, news outlets are, are not doing very well right now because advertising revenue is tanked so much with COVID-19 and the economic shutdown. And so they barely have enough. Well, and they were having problems even before that. 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. They were. Absolutely. What you mentioned brings up something um, that I remember. It's a story I share with my classes in mass communication, an incident that happened with a bakery in Escondido where um, they were they they were getting ready to retire anyway, but they had come under attack on Yelp and social media for they were accused of being involved in some racist incident that they had nothing to do with, nothing to do with at all. But on Yelp, what started happening was that people who'd never been to the business, they just heard about what it was that happened, started posting reviews, quote unquote, you know, people from uh, Cincinnati or from Seattle or New York or wherever it was, who have no idea what this business is saying, don't go there. They're a bunch of whatever um, libelous stuff. And it hurt what little business they had left and they shut down and they blamed the Yelp storm over that, over something that the bakery itself had nothing to do with. Nothing to do with, but they got rolled into it, and they didn't mean it. It, it happens. Yeah, it happens. Yeah. So, as a as a journalist and also a sci-fi aficionado, I, I would like to hear your thoughts about. There's a couple of new technologies that uh, are in like beta in a couple colleges. One is one that seamlessly mimics people's voices uh, to where you can basically have audio sounding like it's coming from the person, and the other one tracks the faces, and you can basically mm-hmm. graft anyone's face. I don't know if you've seen these. Uh, I've heard vaguely about these. I've heard vaguely about them. Um, yeah, all, all the all the deep fake stuff. Yeah, yes. yeah. De- oh, okay. Yeah. So if, when you put it like that, deep fake. Yeah, I'm I'm, te- I'm really worried about deep fakes. Um, that's just another layer that gets added onto what we're dealing with in terms of what is um, factual and what is not. I prefer to say what is factual as opposed to. In some cases, what is truthful, it sort of it's, it depends on what point of view you're looking at. Um, director Julie Taymor, she did the movie Frida. She did The Lion King on Broadway. She, I, I remember an interview with her, with Bill Moyers, where she said, you know, truth artistically, it, it can be whatever is behind the eyes. So for her, truth is a subjective thing. But then there's objective truth in terms of what you factually gather to um, – to create a narrative of of concrete things, right? Deep fakes pose a real challenge to that that type of truth and that type of um, objective truth. Um, and I don't know. I, I, I'm I'm worried about it because yeah. how do you combat that? Because I don't want someone taking my face and taking my voice and feeding it through an algorithm and creating a video of me saying things that I have never said before. And then how do I challenge that when someone says, well, you know, you said this, you said this, you said this, and here's the video proof, which doesn't exist, you know, right? There are, there are telltale, there are telltale signs, fortunately, that you can still piece it apart and tell that it's not real. But I touch on that, you know, I touch on this in black market news towards the end of the book, the CEO of Estate is on trial basically he's he's on he's on congressional trial a form of impeachment and the only way that the members of the panel there's one member of the panel in the book i'm not giving any way uh, i'm not giving away anything you know there's no spoiler here really um but there's a member of the panel that's um trying him where they're referring to time code and certain other uh, digital footprints in footage that has to do with him that's pretty damning that confirms that it is real. We're going to have to, it's not time code doesn't cut it anymore (laughs) for that kind of thing, but we're going to have to think about some kinds of digital footprints that we can put into this, 
into deep fake footage, whether it's audio or video or still image for that matter, that can show that this is an altered piece of material that does not come from an original source. It's just so tough, though, because by the time you do that digital forensics, it's already gone around the world on share, 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 share. Exactly. Well, and, And on top of everything else, this democratization of filmmaking tools. Right. Which as filmmakers, we've all been super excited about for the last 20 years and have benefited from journalism, too, by the way. Both of us have been liberating, but it has totally changed the game for these bad actors in the world. They can do a deep fake on a really crappy laptop and (laughs) fool half the world into believing something's real. It's it's the, the accessibility of the tools to do these uh, very nefarious things. Are, are no longer it's no longer uh there used to be like a you know a gate like you you had to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to create a fake newscast you know right we're doing this over the internet right now for like 40 bucks a month <laughs> you know like, exactly you know uh, just before um campus shut down at san diego state i was talking to one of my freelance writers who's a student there um, not in any of my classes, but but she's been a student at State, and she's one of my freelance writers for the North Coast Current. And I was, we were talking about something, and I padded my laptop. I had it with me. I said, my newsroom's right here. And within a week, everything was shut down, right? And then I'm hearing from the Union Tribune, and I'm hearing from colleagues at the Los Angeles Times and other places where they're saying, you know, now we're doing all of our work from home. And we're thinking, what is the, do we really need a full newsroom anymore when I can be doing all of my design and editing and everything at home? At City College, I had the newspaper staff at City College when I was the advisor there. We were doing the design and editing remotely because we didn't have a newsroom because they didn't give us one basically because we were under construction. And so, and that was in 2014. And I was realizing to myself, I've sort of, I've been practicing this in, in, for several years out of necessity, you know, because I'm a, I'm a small business or I had students who didn't have the facilities yet, you know, and now here we are, we all have to. Yeah, there's actually a a couple parts in your in your novel where um, the black market news uh, peddlers are actually putting together their papers. And it was it was so much fun for me to read because, yeah, I have a journalism background myself as well, uh, having done it in high school and studied it in college uh, as well. And you have them with the wax and the razor blades and the rulers literally cutting a layout, um, which. You know, anybody who didn't participate in journalism, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, probably doesn't even know what you're talking about, which is something I find fascinating. But there was a there was a a snail's pace to getting the news out once upon a time that I think helped people kind of cool their nerves, double check their sources. There was time to sort what was truth versus what was fiction in a breaking news story because you just didn't have the ability to run with it right then. Um, and it was kind of neat to read that in your novel and be reminded of, of a time where, Oh yeah, you could yell, stop the presses and actually stop <laughs> yeah. the news from going out. Uh, yeah, that was one of you my, you can't do that anymore. That's done. <laughs> yeah. That was one of my favorite things to write in, in the book. I, what I wanted to do it, there's, there's sort of a retro tech element to this story. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think people who are into into retro technology are going to like this book for that reason, because 
I take in, in the story, news media has been so corrupted by the political and corporate environment that it's in, in this future that I've put together in this dystopia, that the real journalists have to go underground to do it. And the only way to do it, to stay off the networks and to keep um, from being tracked is to do it through analog means, right? So it's typewriters, it's um, it, it, it's typesetting, it's running with real presses, you know, a, a real piece of paper, you can't, you can't, you, you, there's no tracer on that, right? You know, and you can shred it and it's gone. So right. I, I loved writing all of that because I got to pull from my memories of that environment. I, I, our gen, the Gen X generation, we're, we're the last generation to experience any of that because when I worked at North County Times, we were fully, um, we were fully automated. Uh, we, were, we were digital in production and getting the, the paper out. And we were on early adopters online. Um, in 1996, they had their, 95, they had their news website going. When I got to the Union Tribune, they were still doing paste-up, and that was in 2000. And they were still doing paste up up until I think 2008 or nine. They were one of the last right. papers in the country to do away with it. Um, and I miss that environment. I think something was lost with it, but at the same time, it's just, it's part of the progression, right? Part of the progression. But yeah. I pulled from all of those memories to create that aspect of the book. And that was a lot of fun in the writing because I, I enjoyed remembering the sounds and hearing the noises and the roar of the press and, you know, the, the zipping of the exacto knives and the sound of the wax. And oh, <laughs> well, it was speaking fun. of speaking of memory, I want to I want to do you a, a memory right now. I'm going to bring onto the call the face of E-State from Human Resource. Mr. Steve oh, Schwartz. It's got to be Steve Schwartz. then. Yeah, <laughs> the, the exec from E-State in Human Resource. How you doing, Steve? <laughs> If he'll unmute his mic, he can talk to oh. us. <laughs> oh, Steve. I was using my implant. I was hoping that you, you would right. get that message. You know, I still have those implants from that movie, and they still work. You can put two AA batteries in them, and they still flicker away. I think I used them in, I think I've used them in two 48-hour film projects as a prop for some whatever reason I needed to use them. I for. remember yeah. seeing them in, the, in one of your 48s and going, yeah, hey, I, know, I know that. They've been in really yeah, one of those movies, yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I, I even, um, I, uh, I tagged you in a... <laughs> great Steve, Steve's what known as the great deflator. <laughs> Thank you. No, I, I, lose, I lose words in the middle of a thought. Um, okay. It's just early onset dementia. Don't worry about it. Um, I'm doing well right now. I'm, no, I'm well right now. So yes, I'm you're not the only well one who be right. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I just saw some, something recently. I tagged you in a, in a, uh, uh, in a post on Facebook that someone was showing something futuristic where they were using implants like that. And I said, Roman, you were ahead of these people. <laughs> you know, it's it's funny. I when I when I described human resource to one of my colleagues at the Union Tribune at the time we were making it, and I said, "Yeah, we're, everyone's going to have this little implant, you know, at their temple." And she said, "Well, I would love one of those." And I'm thinking, little did we know we might actually have them. I don't know if we love it so much, but she would have loved to have one. She said so. I should have given her one of the props. It didn't even occur. Yeah, to me. there you go. <laughs> here's your here's your implant. Stick it stick it there and. Have fun with your friends. <laughs> yes. We haven't gotten that far, but we have gotten remote controlled vibrators. 
Is that a thing? Yes, that actually is a thing. Oh my God. Fun to see some things haven't changed in 20 years, I right, Roman? I know. <laughs> oh, God. That's hilarious. Well, you know, back when I we made human resource, the flip phone was still like nifty new technology. So, True. you know, it's, yeah. uh, we've come a yeah, long way. Right. Here I thought Steve was going to be like, oh, you know how the phones are automated and you can do the smart house stuff. Now <laughs> he talks about remote control. <laughs> in, in the in in, in the oh, remake so of Logan's cool. Run, that you too, know they're going to include too. them. That too. <laughs> in in the remake of Logan's Run, they're probably going to include something like that because or um or Zardos that movie with Sean Connery. Oh dear God! <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know Roman movies I, I've ever seen. I, I, oh I my watched, God! I, I binge watched something. I think it was on Netflix uh, this past month that I think you probably would really enjoy. So I'd like you to. Take this down as a little bit of homework as friends. Oh, okay. um, it's a show called uh, Better Than Us. I believe it's a okay. Russian program. Um, watch it in Russian and read the subtitles. You'll be oh happier. really? Oh, You'll be no. happier than the uh, than the the dub. The dub's terrible, but it's a okay. really fascinating show. I think you'll really enjoy it. And I, I I would I would love to bring you on our Sci Fi Sunday program to to talk <laughs> about that series together because I okay. think you'd be a great person to chat about that series. Oh. With. Okay, I'll have to. I'll, I'm intrigued now. Okay. I just started watching Space Force. Oh yeah, that is that. Oh, out that's now? right. I'm thinking. Wait yes, a minute. Are you talking about the President's Initiative or the show? Oh yeah, the no, show. The well, show. they're both kind of a throughout. joke, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. How was the show? Um, I never liked The Office. Um, never <laughs> got into it. Um, so it's on that realm. Oh, is it? Is, uh, is it an office? <laughs> Is it, uh, it's a kind of an office-like show. How, how well, does it? No, it, it's just because Steve Carell's in it. I think Steve's saying he doesn't like Steve Carell. No, I love Steve Carell. It's just the writing on this uh, and some of the dialogue is very adolescent. Uh, Which is sometimes the case with Steve Carell's work. Yes. So. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I mean, that's maybe part yeah. of the charm, part of the but, fun. Uh, right? The cast that they got is pretty much anybody who was on Comedy Central um, or in a, uh, a Chris Guest mockumentary. Oh. Everybody, everybody's in it. So, Oh, it might be kind of fun, got, though. Everybody's got cameos. So it's, Ooh, Brian suggested watching Humans on Amazon. That actually, that's a really good one. Humans, a great, Humans is a great show. Love that show. <laughs> haven't seen that one is yet. That the, is that the same humans I'm thinking of? The one that was on um, Sci-Fi was on Channel? AMC. Yeah, it was on. It wasn't on. It wasn't it on AMC for a time too. Oh, was it? Might have been. It's a, It's about the the human android. The uh, the mm-hmm. androids. Yeah, I love that show. It's a great show. Carla Van Wagner says it's hard to get into space. Oh, Space Force. Well, it is. I mean, you got to apply. I mean, you can't like <laughs> walk in and. Get launched on SpaceX. I would Becky say Maskey says, "Oh, Stephen Schwartz." <laughs> <laughs> I wonder why. Um, no, I, it's <laughs> the best way to describe Space Force is it's a live action version of Team America: World Police. That's uh, what it looks like. Oh, yeah. awesome! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there's the, you have to uh, have, shove tongue firmly in cheek uh, when you're watching this. And there is a beautiful, beautiful. Uh, uh, 
There it goes again. <laughs> That's why we call him the Great Deflator. <laughs> well, it's it's it's, it's a beautiful George. tribute. There's a beautiful tribute to uh, to an actor to that. Is it is it loosely based on this Space Force concept that the White House is wanting to put together, or is it something it's, entirely different? No, it is not loosely based on like, the White House. <laughs> oh, it's like really based on it. Is oh okay. It it is a direct mm. um, from a tweet. Did you see? Oh, I, I got it. I've got to check it out. I, did you yeah. see a, a, a couple weeks ago? They they have like a, a a wall with like all the images of various generals in our military, and the guy who's in charge of Space Force. Somebody had pasted Steve Carell's photo <laughs> over his face on an actual government <laughs> oh <my>. display. <laughs> I, I love how the, the flag, the flag, and the and the logo for Space Force is directly ripped off from Star Trek. Yeah, you know. Yeah, I know, right? It's <laughs> so bad. That's terrible. I'm All sorry, right, I'm take the reins and get us back on track here. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So after when all the when everything gets cleared up, right? The, we can go outside again whenever that happens. Mm-hmm. There's an now, outside. Whatever. There is an outside. Uh, what What are you hoping is the next thing? Are you going to be plugging away doing mm-hmm. novels? Are you going to go back to film? What is uh, ideal future? That's a good question. I um, I haven't given that a lot of thought yet. Um, in, in the time that I've that I've been sequestered during this whole thing, I've actually been jotting down some plot points and notes and scenes for a new novel. And this is this one also is based on a script that I finished uh, maybe two or three years ago. But I don't know if I'm gonna. I don't know how far I'm gonna take it. I'm sort of on the fence. I'm thinking, well, maybe I'd like to write a script again too. That's just fresh and and new. One thing I do know is that black market news is finished. You're not going to see unless unless it gets optioned for a show or a a second book or a sequel or something or a movie. Great, but you know I'm not going to revisit that for a while. But I really I I, I still want to um, I I don't know I I've been working on I've been working on loosely a novel based on another script I've got, but I'm also wanting to just start fresh on something completely new, and that would be a script just uh, just a new script. But I don't know yet. I ha- I haven't. I haven't given it much thought. I've been so enveloped in, in grading and trying to manage my students after we left the semester halfway through and went all online. That's been, that's been yeah. almost all consuming to a point where I'm really tired. If any of my students watch this, I'm sorry, my students, but I'm tired of it, but I'm sure you are too. <laughs> we're all in the same boat when it comes to that. So I, I know that all of us were, were quite fatigued. No, I, I don't blame them. And, I hope they don't blame me either. <laughs> I pitched I pitched you an idea of something that you could work on last night. I hope oh, you're yes, still that's right. Yeah, we, yes, we did. We did talk about that. <laughs> so yes, that that's there too. Um, Roman, with everything going on, is, is there any suggestions you could give to viewers uh, about how they could double check the facts they're seeing on screen? As a journalist, mm-hmm. I'm sure you've got your your ideas on reliable sources, places they can go for, for yeah. fact checking. Um, Cause I, I know, you know, a lot of people like post snopes.com right away on a, on a Facebook post and say, you know, look at these, but you know, there's, there's reason to not a hundred percent believe everything Snopes says. No, too, so. Snopes sometimes has, has problems. Yeah. Uh, Do you have any recommendations? Any yeah. Don't let's, you let's, say anything bad about Brooke Binkowski? <laughs> no, it's, it's, Snopes is uneven. I, I would say it, it's uneven. You know, when it's good, it's good. When it's not, it can be. Yeah, it, it's it's got it, it's uneven. I think really 
the best thing that's worked for me is if you come across a story that just doesn't quite read right, make sure, or, or, or it's a broadcast as well, go online and try to find as many versions of that same story from different reporters, different um, news outlets, and see what the consistencies are. And if you're finding a story that's consistent in its reporting, and sometimes, you know, journalists will, will, will jump off each other. A story is broken in, at one outlet, and then it gets picked up at other outlets, and they do their own original reporting. If there are consistencies in the reporting from outlet to outlet to outlet, that is one good way to put together a, a reasonable understanding that what you're reading is, is accurate, because these are separate reporters from separate outlets on separate deadlines, working with their own sources. And if it all comes together, um, then I think you've got a pretty good, a pretty good line of, of factual understanding. And that should be that way in journalism anyway, even with the sources that, that you're working on for a story. If you, if you come across um, consistencies in, in what ends up becoming newsworthy sometimes is, is where something is inconsistent, which means one source is telling you one thing, but another source is saying something a bit different. And then you have to sort of fill in the blanks there of what, of, of what, um, what the, the factual accuracy is. But for, for a person who's out there just reading on social media or just picking up on news, I think having a variety of outlets is really helpful. Don't just read the New York Times or don't just read the Washington Post. Read them both and then throw in the Wall, the Wall Street Journal for a good measure because Wall Street Journal has a different, um, has a different audience that they're writing for. They're writing for generally a, a, a more center to conservative audience that's more business oriented. But if their facts and what they're discovering is similar to what the Washington Post is, which is a, a different, a bit of a different audience sometimes, um, then you've got, you're, you're onto something. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, one thing uh, I noticed yesterday, um, you know, because I see the arguments constantly going on about the protests that are happening and everybody wants to focus on the violence and the looting and the stuff that's going on. And I keep kind of trying to remind people that there's multiple sides to this story happening. And one of those sides of the story is the cops are all misbehaving in this time too, and not doing themselves any favors. And one of the things I was noticing yesterday was, and I saw it on multiple different uh, networks, the aerial shots of what's going on, say in Long Beach and Santa Monica, best examples they would show looters attacking uh storefronts and like a whole storefront just just all these looters attacking these storefronts and then they would say you know but three four blocks up the road is the peaceful protest and where the looters are you wouldn't see any cops doing anything about it and they would go up to the peaceful protesters where there's a line of riot police uh military humvees and everything else and it's obviously a peaceful protest maybe a little bit of like occasionally someone throw a water ball or whatever at the cops and then the cops start shooting rubber bullets and tear gas into the peaceful protesters while two blocks away all the looting and vandalism and heavy heavy uh bad actors are doing their business and they're just completely ignoring them in favor of shooting into uh peaceful protesters and not a single network while they covered all that pointed out the error in procedure. I, I think in, in, in defense of, I, I don't, I, I don't disagree with that. Um, 
because I think that what we were seeing in the footage was, especially last night, last night and night before was just insane. Um, but one of the things that I was hearing on Channel 8 last night when we had some trouble in downtown San Diego, uh, Channel 8's been really good about this, by the way, KFMB. They had, I think, two or three, yeah, it was, it was two or at least two reporters, but I think there were three. They were spread out with the protesters by, this was by 11 o'clock last night. And the, the protesters were in clusters and they had broken up at some point, and then some were going down Front Street, some were off somewhere on B Street, some were in the gas lamp quarter, wherever they may be. And you would see the police have a line at one street as, were, as protesters were gathering, but then you would see in another part of downtown um, more trouble with a lot less fewer cops, if any at all. And my only, my, the only explanation that I would give, and I'm not speaking for all instances in this is that law enforcement is I think also overwhelmed in, in all of this too. And they might, where they put all their forces to what they think is going to be the problem um, and ends up maybe not being the problem over here. It's like a balloon. You squeeze it and there's a little bit of the balloon that comes out over here, or there's a bit of the balloon that comes out over here and you're squeezing all this over here, but then the bit of the balloon out over here is blown out. And then you've got a, sort of readjust where everything is going to go. I saw this in some footage on San, uh, from Santa Monica last night. Um, there was some looting going on, and, uh, this, uh, and the reporter was noting that there was no law enforcement presence at all. This was on the, um, the pro- I guess it's called the Santa Monica Promenade, or mm-hmm. whatever that, what that's called. Um, and there were looters just going into stores, and there was no law enforcement presence at all. But then in about, as the reporter was continuing going on, it was, it was Gotti Schwartz on MSNBC. Then within about five to seven minutes of his reporting, um, uh, sirens went off and uh, red and blue lights started flashing from down the street. And they all went boom, like, you know, like sort of like, like cats in a room when a boom goes off. They just went, they disappeared. And then they rushed in and, ar- and arrested several of the, of the looters. But they were not there for quite some time. Yeah, I, I don't know what the I don't know what the what the answer is or what the motivation is. I th- yeah, and I'm not I, saying that I'm not saying that I have an answer to that or that you would have an oh, answer sure. to that. Yeah, the thing the thing for me that I keep seeing in the news is a lack of asking the question about sure. the procedure. Sure, sure. Yeah, I think that's a and I, I understand being overwhelmed, but the question has to be asked: How are how are the police forces? Uh, approaching dealing with these situations and is it appropriate in the manner that they're doing it? And I would argue if you take a a good look and read the reports, uh, our friend Karen uh, Perlman was in La Mesa, um, Mm. read the reports about how often the police ignore the looting and then start firing and create chaos into a peaceful protest, which then, pushes them into the looting areas and makes it more difficult to decide who's what. This was happening in, in Minneapolis too, because in the first mm-hmm. nights when things were really, um, were really so, sort of exploding, um, there was no police presence or law enforcement. I don't want to say just police, but law enforcement presence at all in those areas as the buildings were burning and there, and there were questions that night. And I was wondering too about whether or not that was a tactical decision. In other words, if you, if you bring law enforcement in right away, 
are you going to actually inflame who's there already and make the situation that's already worse and then have a loss of life as opposed to loss of buildings or infrastructure. I've heard that discussion, especially over the first couple of nights um, in Minneapolis, but, but it hasn't, that seems to have not been discussed a lot. And this is, I think this goes back to the procedural question. I haven't heard that discussion much since in the last couple of nights. I, I don't know. Um, I can see where that might be a, a strategic or a, a tactical decision. Um, but I'd like to see that explained a bit more um, yeah. as to why. I would have liked to have seen, for example, um, a police, and maybe a, maybe a police chief or two have done this, and I just haven't seen it. But So I'm, I don't want to say that I haven't heard this because it hasn't been done. But I would like to see a commissioner or a police chief say, we made the tactical decision not to go there because – we know that we knew that there was looting. We knew that there was rioting, and if we went over there, there would be too many lives potentially um, in the balance when it comes to burning buildings and the people who are really committing the violence, as opposed to pepper balls and mm-hmm. flashbangs at protesters yeah. who are just pushing us a bit too much on the front line. I, I don't know, but I think that that could be one thing that could be explained a bit more. Yeah, sure. I'm curious. Go ahead, Whitney. Oh, I would. I would be curious to see. I mean. I was thinking about like, you know, people who do hostage situations where the, the purpose, the idea is to de-escalate. And you've seen this a little bit across the country where like the cops have, you know, uh, walked Flint, in solidarity. Flint Michigan. Flint, Michigan. Yeah. He's a perfect example where they, they started a dialogue. Um, I'm just curious. I would be curious to find out how much of that training is proliferate, pro- mm. Words. Proliferating? Steve, Steve, this is your fault. It's contagious. You brought it in here. Um, uh, how much that's taught across the country, or you know, it's not, my problem. it's not my problem. You can't say proliferate. Yeah, <laughs> and yet it is. Did I just hear proliferate or proliferate, Steve? <laughs> proliferate, or is it now? I'm one. Now I don't know either. That's not fair. Oh, thanks, Stephen. Yeah, thank you, thank you, Stephen. Carla Van Wagener, uh, her her comments on the screen right now. She says, "I think that's why they called in the National Guard to guard high end retail." I have the same question about bricks being brought to the protests. Why don't the police uh, go to the sites where the bricks are and scoop them up? They know they're going to be used. Yeah, there was uh, an incident where a uh, police horse was uh, badly injured by a thrown brick. And uh, yeah, I'm sorry, Stephen. The way you said that, I was thinking, okay, what joke is coming up? No, it's not. <laughs> the unfortunately, way you said that, unfortunately, but, know, but unfortunately, no, I know. Yeah, unfortunately, no. Um, I was admonished by my horse friends from back east <laughs> for not mentioning this, and really? I said, yeah, and I said, it, you know, I'm sorry, and it's disgusting that it happened, but I'm not surprised because mm-hmm. when things escalate like this. It rules. There's no rules in a riot. I mean, if you're looking no. for rules for a riot, you're, they're not going to be be one. I mean, I said, um, you know, if you're going to throw gasoline on a fire, don't be surprised when it explodes in your face. I mean, this is what happens when things get out of control. Yeah, a horse got injured, and it's disgusting that someone actually threw a brick at a horse. But you're surprised that something is escalating out of control, that nothing is actually being done to quell 
the violence other than attack it with more violence. Mm. It, it's the whole, the whole topic is again, it's really prescient because in, in the book, in black market news, there's a, there's a part where, and again, I'm not giving away any spoilers with this. This is not a spoiler moment, but, but Quinn is out there doing some of his, his underground work and he's working with a source who's working, who's, who's in touch with um, like paramilitary or, or law enforcement up in Los Angeles. And during riots and protests, uh, the number of, of, um, of paramilitary and, um, and officers who are being injured and killed in all this rioting is being underreported because um, E-State does not want to have bad numbers um, out there showing that their police forces are, <laughs> that are, sounds are not eerily familiar. <laughs> yeah, very exactly. familiar. So it's like, cause they, cause of poor training and cutting corners and, and stuff like that. I, it's just like, if there, if there's a time to, to, to write and read a book like this, it's, it's now, man. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, 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 it's crazy. Even for me, I'm like, I'm, I'm pretty blown away by this in terms of the timing. Right. Yeah. Steve Troop said, I want to know why they have cameras on every jaywalker who crosses the street, but don't have any cameras on whoever's dropping off the bricks. It's an interesting question. Huh. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, those cameras are supposedly running all the time, right? The red light cams and stuff. Well, if we had E-State running everything, we would. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I think we do. We just don't know. Actually, I don't know where I don't know where San Diego is with their uh, red light cameras. Last time when I was down there working uh, in TV news, um, the red light cameras were shut off, um, and uh, not in operation because uh, the county was suing the manufacturer uh, of those cameras for actually moving the sensors. Um, huh. Yeah, well, they, yeah. The manufacturer was and installers were getting a uh, a small piece of every ticket that was uh, that was generated, and then they sure. the county realized that they moved the sensor to make it more um, possible, kind of like a, sensitive, I guess, to to trigger oh, a to trigger the red light camera to go off and to issue a citation. And they would get yeah, a portion of that fine. Yeah, so, uh, Encinitas just um, uh, just ended its contract with uh, the red light camera company that were that they were contracting with for, gosh, like what ten fifteen years now. So the red light cameras are off in Encinitas mm-hmm. now. Yeah, the the red light cameras here in Oceanside by my house all went offline about two years ago now. Yeah, um, they've been slowly phasing them out because people. I, I think they were a good traffic deterrent for a time, but at the same time, I don't know. There, there are too many ways to mess with them too, in a way that it becomes a revenue generator as opposed to a, a right. true safety measure. And I think that's where the the problem with them is. Well, that's always that? that's always the difficulty, right? Is commerce versus, uh, you uh, know, yeah, versus They're, law. <laughs> yeah, a, a lot of them are still in operation in Orange County. So I don't know if I should be surprised by that or not, but yeah, that would well, be, you know, <laughs> more Northern Orange County, uh, Anaheim, uh, are having the protests and everything. I think the biggest protest I had in Mission Viejo was that, um, a Starbucks ran out of nutmeg. And, uh, <laughs> uh, like, it, was, it was a Karen riot. It was a terrible yeah. Like Steve Troop's comment. In my new book, Red Light News, I call yeah. it all this. 
Make it a, make it a graphic a novel, Steve. From, um, yes. <laughs> oh, we missed a question from Carla earlier regarding uh, the SpaceX. Right. Uh, oh. Let me let me address Brian's comment here first. Uh, he said, "I read something about." During the riots, cops turn off their cams and cover their badge number. Not sure the precedent. Um, uh, covering their ass. <laughs> <laughs> CYA, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, where, yeah, here we go. Here's Carla's question. Saturday space launch. Getting back to, like, we're in this weird oh, totally. uh, repeat of the 60s, right? <laughs> yeah. Saturday okay. space launch. Thoughts? Perhaps the next book can be about private yeah. versus government in the space that race. That would be a fun one. Well, you know, as I posted on Facebook, um, in India, some monkeys uh, broke into oh. a lab and stole vials of blood. Yeah, I saw that. We had the riots going on, and uh, now we have a space launch. So what's the over-under of those uh, astronauts coming back to a planet of the apes? Well, I can oh tell you, yeah. gr- growing up, I was always, like, fascinated at getting to 2010, right? Like, right. for some reason, <laughs> 2001 and 2010 were, like... Maybe because it's the books and the movies, yes. and, and like, oh, are. those are going to be big deals when we get there. I yeah. had no clue that 2020 was going to be the year of absolute batshit craziness. Yes, yeah. It's, it's I mean, yeah, also have to understand if you look back in uh, in our history, 1968, 1969, we are having race riots like crazy going on, and the space race at the same time. And it was in 1968 when Apollo 8 went up. And got that iconic uh, Earthrise uh, shot that um, people started writing into NASA saying, "Thank you, you just saved this the the '60s mm. because it was something that could inspire people." And yeah, because you had the assassinations of Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy, and you had everything going on in the South, and then this was going on in space, and we have come almost fifty years later. We've come full circle with right. this amazing yeah. private private enterprise uh, going up, launching in space. I mean, I'm amazed just watching everything that in front of them, they had three touchscreen panels for every single thing that they had to do. When if you look back at the Apollo mission, every single surface had was buttons. a dip switch. <laughs> was a yeah. dip switch or something <laughs> that they had to switch and they had to turn around saying, oh, no. We gotta flush the toilet. Let me go in the back of the, uh, in the back of the, back of the spacecraft and and flush the toilet for you. It was amazing. Totally. It's absolutely amazing. Everything yeah. is on a touch screen, and it's so Spartan inside. Well, I will say this: my favorite part of the launch, because um, I, I watched it live. I don't know if all you guys watched it live. <laughs> I did. But my favorite part of the launch was watching uh, Tremor the little dinosaur when he finally started oh, floating yeah, around yeah. the cockpit. <laughs> I was like, I, I was, so I was, I was remotely watching with my nephew, Aiden, who's a huge SpaceX fan. Um, and I just love how into all of this kind of new space race he, he is. Um, <laughs> I texted him. I'm like, Hey, is that the first dinosaur in space? He says, absolutely. Yep. <laughs> 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 but yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was nice to see something uh, kind of bright and cheery in the midst of all this um, with a, with a kind of family oriented lightheartedness as well. Um, Roman, uh, 
thank you so much for chatting with us today. Oh, it's been a pleasure. This has been um, a lot of fun. Thanks. I want to I want to reiterate to everybody where they can find your book. Um, they can get it as a ebook or in paperback on Amazon.com, mm-hmm. and they can also find it as a paperback at BarnesandNoble.com. Roman, um, you wrote a book. <laughs> a little late to the party, Stephen. Yeah, a uh, Steve. <laughs> you know, Steve. I'll throw that in. Uh, anything you'd like to say, parting words to our, our viewers, Roman? Before I, uh, I send you, you know, off. I um, the the last thing I would say, and I, I I was just thinking about this, and and it's about about the book. One other thing about it is sort of a note and a commentary to um, the younger generations coming up. I'm concerned about. Because if you notice in the book, Quinn and Jasper and Kay are sort of sandwiched in between these generations where they're almost being used by the people who have come before them and maybe some of the people who might be coming after them. And so for me, I I like that the book also covers the idea that, um, that, that young people need to make sure that they have control over their own lives and in their, and their own ways of thinking and to make sure that they are not used by um, the, the sources and the forces around them to direct their lives perhaps in ways that they don't want them to go. Good. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Well, Roman, we're going to say goodbye to you, and I'm going to chat with my two co-hosts right. for a little bit. Uh, thank Enjoy. you again for joining thank us. Um, I'm so proud of you for getting this novel done and thank for you. for seeing your vision of this story through after all thank these you. years. Um, art is one of those things that gestates and takes time, and this is a perfect example of it. And uh, totally. my hat's off to you. Thank you, David. Whitney, it was great to talk to you. And Stephen, it was good to see you, too. Great seeing you, Roman. And Carla, Brian, and Steve Troop, and everybody else on live comments. Good to see you, too. Thank you. Someday we'll see each other face-to-face again. I know. I hope so. I hope so. This was a blast. Thanks. All right. Bye, Roman. Bye. Thank you. (laughs) Hi, guys. Hi. Um, I'm going to – I want to do one thing here. Hold on a second. Uh, I got to – I want to show that. Yeah, uh, get rid of this. Uh, no, hide that. Okay, okay. There, all our names are good. Um, uh, I just wanted to uh, bring up uh, a couple comments here. Steve, Steve Troop uh, brought this one up. Uh, you may not be aware of this, but I know a fair bit about Star Trek. And one of the criticisms of modern Trek is that one of the benefits to physical switches is that when the power goes out, touch screens are useless. Right, and you can't see the switches in the dark. <laughs> Um, Steve, thanks for joining us. Uh, you're welcome. Thank you. I'm glad you were able to get in uh, eventually. Yeah, I was. Um, what do you call it? Um, sleeping. sleeping. Yeah. Um, <laughs> time. Uh, normally, yeah. Time. I'm, as, Whit- I'm, as Whitney keeps saying in pandemic, time has no meaning now. <laughs> yes. Time, whatever. So I, I just had to point this out because it's because uh, now that we're all live, just, look at all the alliteration: DD, WWW, SS. <laughs> I'm very amused by this. <laughs> that is awesome. okay. That's all. Oh, because you're so good. Good to see you guys. Yes. You too. Yes. Oh, yeah, and this, I this my, represents a new a new uh, era for the podcast. We're gonna and do I have more my new. We yeah, look, he's got new, a ring light. I got a ring light. Nice. Now. <laughs> I have I am absolutely impressed by Amazon uh, because the first this is actually my second one because the first one that I got was defective and it would it, there was a short in the in the switch here and. Uh, 
I couldn't use it. It just too jiggly and it would cut in and out. And so I went to return it and they said that there's a return center right near me within 15 minutes. So I boxed it up and I sent it and I immediately got an email uh, saying that we got it. We're returning it and we're sending you a new one in 24 hours. A new one uh, oh, wow. uh, was at my doorstep. So I was very impressed with that. So <laughs> Carla called your nap a pandemic nap. <laughs> nap pan- Actually it's, you know, taking care of your brother nap, uh, nap, nap, demic, <laughs> a nap, demic. I, I have to nap when he naps. So Brian says, so true. I feel it's Suzanne day, the 1114th. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, yeah. this is fun, guys. I'm I'm so looking forward to doing more of our podcast this way. Um, we will be interviewing uh, filmmaker Michael Matteo Rossi this Friday at 5:30. Uh, so be okay. sure to to subscribe to uh, our live streams on our Facebook page or on our YouTube channel. Our YouTube channel is YouTube.com/slash Intellectual Network, and our Facebook page is Facebook.com/slash Intellectual Entertainment. Um, you can also find our podcast at the Gunna Geek Network, GunnaGeekNetwork.com or just GunnaGeek.com, uh, along with a whole host of other geeky podcasts that I'm sure you'll love. And we are also available on all the major uh, podcast platforms from Spotify to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, uh, iHeartRadio. And uh, I hope uh, you'll subscribe to us there as well. There are over 260 episodes of the podcast available to download and listen to covering the course of almost seven years of interviews uh, on our, uh, on our show. Um, So uh, pretty incredible. This coming November will be the uh, end of seven years of the podcast, which just, I can't believe it. I I certainly didn't see us uh, doing this kind of live streaming when we started it. We talked about doing video at the beginning and it was just not feasible. We have survived long enough for it to become this, (laughs) Um, which is just incredible. Um, And my friends, I, I, I am happy you were able to join me today. I love you guys very much and I hope you stay safe in the pandemic. Um, and hopefully we will uh, we all get to hang out again together very soon. And yes. uh, in, yes. in, in that regard as well, I'd like to thank our uh, our patron, uh, Next Gen Automotive. Uh, that's nxtgenautomotive.com. Uh, they are selling the most amazing mask uh, that you can buy. Um, it's HEPA filter. It's... Uh, form fitted you can talk in it you can breathe clearly in it and uh it's easy to clean and and i don't know if you're having a hard time finding a mask this is this is it it's it's fantastic i'm gonna go full screen with me here let me let me i want to show it to everybody so this is this is one of the next gen masks um they they come apart they're 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 uh designed for the hepa filter to be replaced um, very easily. They have the uh, the valve for breathing. <laughs> There's a pack of, uh, of replacements. Um, it's very cool. You look like Bane if you get the black one. Uh, they have it in white as well. Um, I, uh, I got it for uh, a bunch of our intellectuals and uh, I recommend if you guys don't have them yet, um, that you get them for yourselves as well and for how your did, family. How well do they work with uh, wearing glasses? Because the one they thing, work great. 
because every single time I put the word glasses, if I have to make it show the uh, mask is underneath my glasses, that if I Brian. exhale, okay. exhale, I fog up my glasses. But show us, show us yours on with your glasses. So Brian, Brian's going to come here and Brian's going to be a model. He's going to model for you. Um, Thank you, Carol Merrill. Here you go. So Brian's got glasses and a hat on. Yeah. <laughs> so so it's got one long string that you can pull from the bottom and the top with a little uh, uh, clasp here. So you just kind of put this part around your neck and then pull it from the top here. Like on. <laughs> he was not expecting to model, so he had no. to practice. But, uh... Like that. And you can adjust how tight you want it with a little clasp right there. Right there. Yes, I have glasses, and the rubber seal completely seals everything, and I never have any fog, and my glasses can sit, and I have the trifocals. They can nice. sit exactly where I need them. Nice. Yeah, and you can hear them talking. On yeah, the and you can hear me talking, and it's not pressing against it. It's great to breathe in. Much better than the cloth masks that are just completely covering you like this. It's really nice. How much? Yeah. How much are these? Uh, I think I think they're like forty dollars or forty five dollars. Um, so they're a little pricey, but uh, yeah, comes five uh, comes with with five of the uh, filters, which are good for I think forty hours of use before they need to be replaced. Mm. Um, okay. and then you just buy replacement filters. Um, but honestly, it's that plastic piece that I think is the is the the greatest selling point. I I, I love the HEPA filter because I you know I'm a high risk individual, so I actually feel more comfortable having the HEPA filter over just a cloth. Yeah. But uh, but once you have the mask, um, it doesn't you know, pull on your you, ears. You know, <laughs> Brian loves it. Um, he was skeptical when I when I told him I was buying them, but uh, he he wears it every time he goes out now. So um, I, I want to thank them for uh, for sponsoring the uh, show. Um, they uh, they gave they gave us a few uh, a few for the intellectual family. Uh, and uh, after I bought a couple, I, I called them up. I said, "Hey, I, I want to support you. Can can we advertise for you?" And you know, uh, so I, I believe in the product. <laughs> I will never, I will never advertise a product on the intellectual that I don't believe in. So there you have it. Um, guys, thank you so much. Uh, Whitney, if you go back out, uh, protesting, please stay safe. Thank you. Um, I am always concerned about you, uh, but I, I can see that you're getting sun doing so. So, Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm not pasty white anymore, right? So. <laughs> Obviously, I haven't protested. <laughs> Look and at this Steve. progression. This progression of dark to light. <laughs> is just... <laughs> Steve, my friend, uh, take care yeah. of your brother. Take care of your dad. Give them my love. And, uh, yeah, you. I hope everybody will join us again this Friday uh, when we interview Michael Matteo Rossi. Uh, we're going to talk with him about his new film, Shadows. Uh, feature film, uh, which I actually uh, did the post-production sound on. So uh, uh, it'll be it'll be fun to talk to another filmmaker about his film. Um, he's a former SCSU grad who's making movies up in L.A. and uh, doing some uh, some great stuff. So mm -hmm. it'll be good to talk to him. Guys, awesome. uh, have a great day. Have a good week. And I'll see you all again uh, very, very soon. All right. Stay Bye. safe, everyone. And to our listeners, thank you guys so much. We'll see you again, uh, hopefully in four days. Bye. Hello there, citizens. I am the terror that flaps in the night. 
I am the floaty that will not flush no matter how many times you try in the toilet bowl of crime. I am Darkwing Duck, telling you please talk hard and enjoy the mindgasm. <laughs> Whatever the heck that means. After all, you are watching Intellectual Podcast with your ears.